So I've been working at the same hospital for years now, as a nurse in the ER. I've seen a lot of things, all kinds of horrific shit, blood and gore, and just about every household item you can think of inserted into some guy's rectum. I've seen limbs ripped off, I've seen intestines coming out. Almost ten years working in an ER, and you're going to see a lot. You're going to be hard to shake. But last night, something happened. Some girls came in, and I've never been scared like this. I've never had that feeling of, I have no fucking idea what's going on with this patient the way I have with these three girls. It was a sad, fucked up story to begin with. One of those men who gets off kidnapping girls and keeping them prisoner in his basement or his garden shed. Real sicko. But those poor three girls were found and rescued and brought right to us. Now, my hospital isn't that big. There's about five of us who have been trained to take a rape kit. And there were two of us on duty for that last night. Me and this new nurse named Laura. She's been maybe with us about six months. We were both paged to a set of examination rooms that were made up special for such a horrific occasion. Put aside so they're a little more private. They're subtly different, the assault rooms. A little less sterile, a little more comfortable, with a few extra chairs for the cops to sit in while they interview the victim. I expected reporters and wackos to be everywhere, but by the time the girls were brought into the exam rooms, it was all just whispers and gossip. Those poor girls, pulled out of some pervert's garage, those poor girls, they can't even talk. Who knows if they're even from here? Maybe they're international sex slaves, one of the other nurses suggested to me as I passed by her on my way to do my first exam. After examining them each, one by one, I've made the following observations. None of them seem capable of speech or of making any noise. They can communicate with simple gestures, but I don't even know if any of them are literate. They all have the same eyes. I don't mean the same color. I mean that, looking them in the eyes, you get the feeling you're looking at the same person you just saw in the last room. They're blue, with flecks of gray. And I swear that all of them have the same exact patterns of fleck. They all have an identical bump on their back between their shoulder blades that, in my professional medical opinion, is weird as fuck. It could be some kind of congenital condition or birth defect or repetitive strain injury. For example, if they've been forced to balance something on their shoulders or to hold a certain position for long periods of time. They are all losing hair at an alarming rate. Merely laying back to allow me to do a pelvic exam 
more on that later, made each of them lose handfuls of hair on the bed. Could be from malnutrition, vitamin D deficiencies, or other. Or so I thought, until their blood work came back. They're in perfect health, have not been drugged, are not dehydrated or malnourished. Even though they have the paleness and pallor of women who have been kept hidden for years, none of them have the corresponding vitamin deficiencies or health problems. It seems impossible to me that any of these women were held hostage for any length of time. They're probably healthier than I am, and I've had access to healthcare and the ability to go outside a dank little garage. This is where it gets weird. They have no visible genitalia. That's right. That's what I said. Each time I went to perform a pelvic exam, I saw the same thing. Nothing. No vaginas. No labias. Nothing. And, might I add, no anus. They look like Barbie dolls. Except Barbie dolls might be a little more detailed. Laura and I met up in the middle of the rooms and took a little break in a supply closet to frantically whisper about these women and what we're supposed to do. What are they? And why do they look like that? And, but what about the digestive systems? Were all perfectly valid things that the young, inexperienced nurse asked me that I, the old pro, was supposed to be able to answer. But I was even more lost than she was. What I want to know is what that pervert was keeping them for. I couldn't help but voice the thing that had been bothering me. Had he done this to them? Some kind of sick experiments in cosmetic surgery? Was it some kind of human centipede attempt that we thankfully interrupted in time? Should we get someone from gastroenterology up here? Laura asked. What if he sewed up their digestive systems? It wasn't right, though. There was no scar tissue, no sign of recent operation, and if they'd been like that any longer than a day or two, there would have been plenty of evidence in their blood of the toxin building up in their bodies. Nothing made sense. No, I told her. I'm going to try to communicate with them one more time before we decide on a course of action. I left Laura amid the blankets and towels, folded and stacked helpfully on shelves, and went back toward the assault suite. I passed at least five police officers on the way. Did they know? I couldn't help but wonder. Did they know that these weren't normal victims? I knocked quietly before letting myself into one of the rooms, and I heard someone stop talking just as I entered. The girl was still sitting on the bed. Black hair, longer than I remembered it being, with vaguely Asian features. Her eyes were bluer than I remembered. My name is Claire, I told her. I'm the nurse who examined you. Do you understand English? I asked, and my only response was a solemn nod of her head. 
Can you speak? I asked. She neither shook her head nor nodded. Just stared at me with those blue eyes, swirling with flecks of grey. Where are you from? I asked her again, but only got the same response. How old are you? Again, nothing. You have some physical abnormalities. Have you ever been seen by a doctor? I asked her. No response. But the way she looked at me seemed to change somehow. I sensed a flicker of hostility. Anger, maybe. Or resentment. It was not a professional question to ask. But my mouth formed the words before I could stop myself. Are you a human being? The girl's mouth dropped. Almost too far open. And no sound came from her. But from all around us there was a screaming erupting from all sides. There was a commotion in the hall as the police officers ran to the other victims. The one screaming now for no reason other than the question I'd asked the only one of them that was still silent. The next 30 minutes or so after that was a blur. But I know that I got up and I left the hospital immediately. I don't even think I clocked out. I didn't even grab my bag. Didn't give a shit about my post-shift cigarette. I'm probably fired now, but I can't go back. They're still not on the news. I don't know if they ever will be. I don't know if the cops know what they're dealing with, but I'm sure not going to be the one who tells them. I can't stop thinking about it, though. What are they? And what if they weren't the victims? When I was 11, we went to a funeral. The man who had died was a good friend of my father's from the mill where they worked. And he had died rather suddenly. Though for the life of me, I cannot remember his name. He operated one of the machines, and my father worked as the custodian. While he and my father were talking one day, a piece of lumber stuck in the machine. For whatever reason, the man ignored safety procedures and tried to free the stuck lumber. He succeeded, but got his arm caught in one of the moving parts and torn off. He died in my father's arms before paramedics could arrive. At the funeral, my father readied his eulogy and spoke of how his friend would always follow procedures until that one day when he lost his patience. It was a couple of days later when I first saw it. I was an 11-year-old boy at the time and our neighbor across the street was a young woman who worked as a nurse at the hospital. I'm not terribly proud of it now, but I would peek out my window late at night to try and catch a peek of one of the fairly common occasions when she forgot to close the blinds in her room. Our street was a small cul-de-sac with rows of squat evergreen trees lining the street 
which cast long shadows in the light of the two street lights. The lights had been placed too far apart, so there was a small area between them that was always full of shadows. That night, I was disappointed that the blinds had been closed, but I caught sight of movement down the street, just leaving the edge of the pool of light given off by the far light. The other street light was very near my window, so I caught sight of it as it made its way back into the light. It was a man, though his skin seemed to be a molted purple and green, even from a distance. He had one missing arm, but was dressed in very fine clothes, a tuxedo with a bright red cummerbund. He was walking casually up the street. This man I didn't recognize until we stopped at the foot of our driveway. I was confused and growing a little scared as he just stared up at our house. I turned away from the window, assuring myself he would be gone when I looked back. But when I did, he was still there. I thought about crying out for my parents, but I couldn't find the words. After nearly an hour, he turned and walked away down the street the way he had come, disappearing beyond the light of the far street light. I told my parents, but they assured me it was only a dream. I overheard my mother telling my father that it was a nightmare brought on by attending the funeral. That night, I checked the street, but there was no sign of the figure but the blinds were open. I distracted myself with the nurse who was disrobing, and when she finally turned out the light, leaving only the dim, flickering glow of the TV that she always left on, I decided to turn back to my own bed. Then, I saw that he was back, standing just where he had been the night before. Soon he was gone again, and I slept fitfully. This continued on and off for the next week. Some nights he never appeared at all. Others he would stand in the same spot, and still others he would stand near the crooked old tree on the corner of our yard. But even when he came, he was always gone soon after. One night, I called for my parents to come see him, but as soon as I did, he turned his eyes on me before casually walking into the shadows and disappearing. My father was rather upset about being woken up for nothing and told me that I would be grounded if I ever bothered him with this nonsense again. It was another week before he showed up again. I watched as he strode up the street, through the shadows, and to the end of my driveway. Then he turned towards the house and kept walking. My heart leapt into my mouth, beating furiously as the figure came ever closer. But the door was always locked at night. He couldn't get in. I told myself this, but when he got to the door, I heard a faint click and a creak, and then quiet footsteps in the hall. 
someone had forgotten to lock the door. I held my breath as the steps got closer to my room, but they suddenly stopped, and I heard another click and creak. A few more soft steps, and then the room seemed to grow colder. Then the footsteps were back, retreating out of the house the way they had come, and I watched him stroll back down the street. I ran to my parents' room, but my father would hear none of it and sent me to bed. I didn't sleep. I didn't see him again the next night, or the night after. But on the third day, early in the morning while I prepared for school, and my father made his way to the car to go to work, he suddenly went stiff. His arm clutched at his chest, and he sank to his knees. I stood transfixed, while my mother screamed and snatched at the phone, and the woman from across the street sprinted away from her own car to my father's side. His face was twisted in agony, and his fingers grasped violently at the young woman holding him. But just as the lights of the ambulance rounded the corner, he relaxed and sank to the ground. My father died that day. I don't remember much about the days that followed. My mother cried. I cried. Friends and family offered sympathy, and there was a funeral at some point. They dressed him in his finest suit, the one he had boasted he would wear on my wedding day. I slept very rarely and very lightly after that. I would lie in bed and weep quietly to myself until sleep came, and then weep when I awoke. It was only by chance that I returned to my bed from the bathroom one night in time to glance at the woman across the street. She had undressed and soon turned out the light. It was only then that I saw them. The one-armed man in a tuxedo stood staring at her house, while a tall man in a fine suit stood next to him. Even with molted skin, I recognized my father. Then they started up the woman's driveway. Step by step, they walked in unison. And when they reached her door, my father opened it. Together they slipped inside. I was crying by then and shaking in fear. By the light of the woman's TV, I saw two shadows enter her room and then saw her windows fog up. When the two emerged from her house and set off down the street, I fell on my bed and wept until I slept. The nurse was killed in a car accident four days later, and three weeks after the man who had stopped to help her died too. Then the doctor from the emergency room who helped him, then the doctor's wife. 
their neighbor, who was drowning when the kind old man who lived up at the end of my street tried to save her. I had developed a compulsive habit of checking the street every night to see if my father was coming back, but he never did. There had never been any sign of either specter until that night. Suddenly, figures appeared out of the shadows. A one-armed man, my father, a young woman and a man with a limp, a man and a woman holding hands, and another woman wearing a white dress. They all walked in unison up the street, past my home, on their way to the old man's house. They would be back every night, I knew then, until the old man forgot to lock his doors. I never saw that day, because the old man was fastidious and my mother moved us in with her sister due to money problems. But I know they are out there, each a link in a chain, each leading them to the last person they ever saw. That is why I never visit people in the hospital. I will never be the last person someone ever sees. I work on the oncology floor of a pediatric hospital. Sometimes it's difficult working there due to the nature of the work, but other times it is just so rewarding and it's those rewarding moments that have kept me in this field for over 15 years. It was nearing the end of my shift and most of my parents seemed content. I had one patient that I really took a liking to. She was a nine-year-old girl suffering from stage four leukemia. A very sweet and humble girl as you might expect at that age and with her condition. I had been caring for her for a few weeks on and off depending on my assignments. Her condition gradually worsened and when children are nearing the end of their life I try to prioritize and spend more time with them. As with most of my terminal patients, I also try to stay optimistic and talk about things they like or what they would like to do if they could leave the hospital. I had only found out earlier in the week that this girl loves dogs. So, since I had some downtime, I figured I would go in and share some pictures of my two dogs with her. I walked into her room, and she's looking so small in her bed. The TV was off, and her mother was sitting to the left of her. The mother smiled at me as I walked in. The room was dimly lit, but this little girl was bright white, almost glowing in that dark room, no doubt a result of her severe anemia. She was getting ready to go to sleep for the night. I asked her if she'd like to see some pictures of my dogs on my phone. She agreed. Her face didn't light up at first, but she was a stoic girl, and I could tell she would be happy to look at them. 
I pulled my phone out of my shirt pocket and opened up my photos. There are tons of pictures of my dogs on my phone. They are my life away from work. It's very calming to come home to them after some of the more stressful days here. I sometimes wish I could bring them to work with me to share with the children at the hospital and maybe cheer them up for a bit, but that's not really possible. So showing them on my phone will have to do. I begin showing her my dogs and telling her their names and what breeds they are. I talk about Sadie, my lab shepherd mix, all black with beautiful shining fur. The friendliest dog I've ever met. When I explain how she jumps up and licks my face when I get home, the girl lets out a little smile and giggle. She now seems more interested in the dogs and I give her the phone to flip through the photos of them. Do you have any dogs of your own? No, my mom won't let me have a dog. She says they're too dirty and she would have to clean too much and she already has to clean enough with three kids in the house. Oh, that's too bad. I do have to agree with your mom. They can be very hard work. If you could have a dog, what kind would you have? I like the small poodles. I've pet them before. They're so soft and they're very cute. If I had one, I would name her Dee Dee and take her for a walk every day. Huh. Seems like you're already giving this a lot of thought. Well, maybe if you get better, your mom will think it over. Right, mom? I looked to the child's mother, who just returned my glance and smiled very wide. Mom? Then the child said, That's not my mother. Just then, the little girl goes into a coughing fit. I was surprised. Oh, she's not? Turning to the woman, I apologized. I'm sorry, I just assumed since you had been in here all this time that you were her mother. The girl continued to cough. The woman looked at me, smiling with that big grin as she had been the whole time I was there. She gave her head a slight shake and said, Oh dear, I'm not her mother. I just wanted to watch her die.
Let the body shoot the ball. Let the body shoot the ball.